My beautiful daughter, 18 years old, works in Prism's nursery. And uh, it's a joy. And to think that next year she'll be going to Pasadena City College, at least she's 99% sure, is a real joy for me because it's literally down the street. And, uh, and I, it means I get to see her a lot. And now my son goes to Pasadena City College, and he's 19, and I don't see him at all. But that's beside the point. He hadn't quite figured out that when I offer him free Starbucks, uh, that's an exchange of time spent with me and my daughter. Uh, she totally takes advantage of that, and I'm grateful. You know, I tell her, it's okay. Use me. I just want to hang out with you. If you want the free coffee, that's okay. I, I am not shy at all about telling her that I'm not going to get my feelings hurt if she comes by and says, hey, Dad, want to get some coffee? I understand what her motive is, and I'm cool with it. Uh, because I really enjoy being with my daughter. I remember uh, the days when my daughter would get uh, um, scared when I wasn't around. This past week, Carolyn and I were out of town for a small vacation, and when we came home, uh, we were lucky to get an acknowledgement of our presence, not the general, which was they'd run up when they were little and they'd jump into your arms and say, you're home, and it was such a thrill for me. And, uh, and, and apparently for them at that time. And, and that's all shifted for us um, considerably. Uh, but I'm grateful because my daughter has become this very strong, very godly, independent young woman. And as a parent, that's great success. Um, there would be a problem, and we would have done something we think horribly wrong if at 18 my daughter still couldn't walk away from me. Like when... She was a small child, and we were in Walmart, and I told her, I'll be back in one second. Daddy's going to go get a cart, and somewhere between the five seconds when I walked away from her and got separated by a group of people that walked through, she lost sight of me, and Walmart heard a blood-curdling scream like you wouldn't believe. I mean, literally, we were separated for five seconds, and Holly broke glass in Walmart with that thing. I mean, and I knew the scream, and I had to run back to her and grab her and hold her in my arms. It's okay, Dad. Dad will never leave you. It's okay. I just was getting. A, I told you I was going away five seconds ago, and and this is what happens. See, when she was little, she needed to know I was there every second of the day. She needed to know that Dad was nearby for strength and encouragement and for confidence. I'm happy to say that at age 18, she no longer needs me there all the time. And this is the grand paradox of maturity in this world versus spiritual maturity. See, as a, as a parent, you're really grateful that your kids are developing independence, and it's a sign of real maturity when they can function in life apart from moms and dads. Our job is to train them and then throw them out of the nest, you know, let them flap their wings on their own. The paradox of spiritual maturity is that the older you get, the more mature you get spiritually, the more you recognize your dependence on God. The more conscious you are of how desperately you need his presence every step of the way. A few years back, I had a breakdown of gargantuan proportions. Uh, and it came at the conclusion of a season of life and ministry for me that was really a decade-long struggle where I now in retrospect can see that I reclaimed the control or at least I thought the control of my life through a series of behavioral patterns 
that made me think I was going to control the situations and the circumstances that I would encounter each and every day. Uh, The people that worked with me when I was the student pastor at a relatively good-sized church, I had a staff of half a dozen, and they would have called me a control freak. They probably would have said the same thing when we planted a church, that same group of ours. As a matter of fact, they used to get a kick out of, um, uh, in setup, creating, uh, turning signs and making them crooked, and then standing back and watching me come up and straighten them. And then I'd hear them all laugh out loud at me. That was the kind of love they had for me as their pastor. And it wasn't until I came to California and collapsed under the weight of a situation that I had arrogantly previously presumed that I could handle on my own that I began to recognize that I had somehow come to a place in my life under the veneer covered in the crud that was, I'm a pastor and I've been a Christian for two decades Really, I found ways, apart from depending on Jesus, to try to sustain peace in my life. For those of you who have never been around a control freak or you're not a control freak, you may or may not understand this, but you will know it from this point on, I guarantee it. And that is, people who are control freaks, people who are trying in their own strength to relieve anxiety or relieve fear in their life, They do so through fear, often through manipulation. So what happens is is people walk on eggshells around them. Maybe you've been around somebody like that, where you go, gosh, I don't want to say anything. It's going to set them off. And so you kind of like walk around tiptoeing. And what that is is it's a person who's so volatile that basically through their volatility, they make everybody in the room conform in such a way that it makes them feel like they're in control of the situation. And that'll work for a while till your marriage starts to crumble under the pressure of it or until God, by his grace, allows you to walk into a situation that you arrogantly presumed you could control on your own because you had before, and he allows his spirit to let you carry the weight of that for just this long and you collapse under it as I did. So you begin to recognize the truth of what Jesus has said is that apart from him we can do nothing. The older I get, and for the record I'm 48, coming up on 49, and the older I rise as a Christian, in other words the more years I get under my belt, the people I begin to recognize as spiritually sound are the ones that are talking about their weakness. And J.I. Packer has a brand new book out on this whole subject that's just amazing. So for today's sake, I'd like to take a look at a passage that normally comes in our Easter packages, and that is about the resurrection, the quick post-resurrection account from Matthew 28, the Great Commission, and see in this passage the promise of peace. You have to recognize that whenever you read the New Testament, and it's true in all four Gospels, it's true in the book of Acts, one of the first things out of Jesus' mouth whenever he appears to people is, peace be with you, or fear not. Now, it could be a number of different reasons, and some have speculated. One is that they're seeing like Jesus, and it freaks them out. You know what I mean? Because it's like you're the resurrected Christ, or if he just appears in a room, that would tend to throw you off your game a bit, so he would like settle down, it's all going to be okay. But more so, you can see in today's passage, and in the warnings from his discussion in the week preceding his death, Jesus is concerned that people would know 
that they can be at rest and that he's going to give them a means by which they can find rest amidst life circumstances that are particularly difficult to deal with. And they were getting ready to walk into some of the, the most challenging situations in life. Now, before I dissect two parts of how we're going to deal with our anxiety in life, I want to reference back to the first few verses of today's passage to show the trouble that was on the way. All right, in Matthew 28, beginning with verse 11, you see trouble a-coming. This is what the scriptures say. While the women were on their way, now this is from the tomb to tell the disciples, about the risen Christ, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. In other words, the bouncing stone, the angel, the resurrected Jesus. When the chief priests had met with the elders and, devi- when the chief police had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money telling them, you are to say, his disciples came during the night and stole him away While we were asleep, if this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. Now, this is really one of the theories for skeptics about what happened to the body of Jesus. Obviously, they took the body. Uh, If you listen to scholars like Bart Ehrman, they'll say how uh, uncharacteristic it was. Um, how the Bible really kind of makes up this story about how the Romans gave the body to his disciples to bury. They would have never done that. And so it continues to be this rejection of the resurrection narrative that the disciples stole this body and stashed it away someplace. And this is what they were working against. They were working almost immediately the powers that be in their culture. I mean, these are the chief priests and the elders and the Roman guard conspiring to make them out to be liars. And these are nobodies in culture. These are the followers of Jesus. The only status they had was that they were seen with Jesus, the rock star, but that was before he was killed and mocked and cried out for his blood by the crowds. So they walk into this. The disciples are seeing this trouble. They can sense it coming around them. And when Jesus appears to them and says, do not fear, peace be with you, this is real to them. The disciples not only could see this trouble coming in their immediate circumstances, but it began to trigger in their minds what Jesus had told them that it was coming beforehand. The good news is that Jesus wanted their peace. Here's some good news and some bad news, all right, from John 15, 18 through 25. Jesus loves his followers. The bad news, some people hate Jesus and will hate his followers too. From John 15, verses 18 through 25, Jesus says this, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. Now, this is before he was crucified, before he was resurrected. If you belong to the world, It would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world because I've chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me, Hates my father as well. If I had not done among them the works no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. As it is, 
They have seen, and yet they have hated both me and my father. But this is to fill what is written in their law. They hated me without reason. So Jesus has told them, and by extension, any of his followers through history, don't be shocked. There are going to be people that because their lifestyle is going to be so, so quenched, so restricted, so bound up, and so changed, such a paradigmatic shift that would take place in their life, that the idea of being a follower of Jesus is so uncomfortable that they're going to strike out against you. It, that, that's going to happen. They're, they're going to hear what you have to say about Jesus, about what he said, and they're just going to get angry because it makes them feel bad. And they're going to take it out on you because they think you're the reason that they're feeling badly. The good news is that he loves his followers, but the bad news is, is that some people hate Jesus and will hate his followers too. Here's some more good news. Jesus will never leave you alone. This is the promise we're given. But as I've said to year, many, many years of students, the bad news is, is if you're genuinely a believer, Jesus will never leave you alone. And that means that you, if you are really a follower of his, and you imagine for a second that you're going to wander off and do your own thing without him, good luck with that. Because uh, he, he's coming to get you, and, and if he has to discipline you to get you back into his family's way of living life, he will. He loves us enough to not let us tell him what we're going to do with our lives. He's offered us peace. In John 16, another long passage, he says, Though I have been speaking figuratively, John 16, verse 25, a time is coming when I will no longer use this kind of language, but will tell you plainly about my Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I am not saying and I am not saying that I will ask the Father on your behalf. No, the Father himself loves you because you've loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and entered the world. Now I'm leaving the world and going back to the Father. Then Jesus' disciples said, Now you're speaking clearly and without figures of speech. Now we can see that you know all things and that you don't need to have anyone ask you questions. This makes us believe that you came from God. Do you believe now, Jesus replied? A time is coming and in fact has come when you will be scattered, each to your own home. You will leave me all alone, and I am not alone, for my Father is with me. And here's this encouragement to them. I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I've overcome the world. The essence of what I would like to encourage us with to conclude our Easter season today is with this idea that Jesus is concerned then in the, the byproduct of professing faith in a risen Jesus, a historical figure who really physically came back to life, not metaphoric, not symbolic, but really coming to believe and professing a belief in a skeptical culture that this Jesus is God in the flesh. If this happens to be your Easter experience or your faith, understand that there are going to come times where people are going to challenge that they're going to be angry with you they're going to be skeptical about what you're saying you believe and and the implications of that faith are going to irritate them but more importantly as you and I face the challenges of our day in and day out lives there is a sense in which we are going to experience troubles and trials that really stir up a, a fear and an anxiety in our lives that has 
it seems nothing to do with what we would profess to believe in culture, as is the case with the disciples. I mean, they're looking at persecution based on what they believe. Charles Spurgeon, I don't have this for a slide, but Charles Spurgeon says this. We are not in this day called to pass through the same fearful persecutions. If we were, the Lord would give us grace to bear the test. But the tests of Christian life at the present moment, though outwardly not so terrible, are yet more likely to overcome us than even those of the fiery age. We have to bear the sneer of the world. That is, its blandishments, its soft words, its oily speeches, its fawning, its hypocrisy, and far worse, Our danger is lest we grow rich and become proud, lest we give ourselves up to the fashions of this present evil world and lose our faith. Or if wealth be not the trial, worldly care is quite as mischievous. If we cannot be torn to pieces by the roaring lion, if we may be hugged to death by the bear, the devil little cares which it is so long as he destroys our love to Christ and our confidence in him. See, Maybe you'd say, we don't, we're not going to get dragged out into the street, and our persecutions are nothing compared to the first century, but as affluent Americans, I have to tell you, we are in danger of becoming lulled to sleep in our comfort, in our ease, in our longing for pleasure. And what happens is, is we begin to lose sight of the things that Jesus has said most importantly, things that he wants us to do Ways he wants us to follow him so that others would see his character expressed in us. It is in so living that we begin to take on the control, if you will, of our circumstances. It's what I did for many, many years. It's carrying as on as if I could say all the right spiritual things and quote all the right spiritual verses, but in reality, I was controlling my circumstances through my own actions towards others through manipulation, through fear. And I want you to know there's no peace in that. So where and how do we avoid worrying? If you, like me, are a worrying machine, or maybe you don't know it yet and you're going to find out through some really difficult challenge in life, or maybe like you, and you can, you're free to talk with Carolyn all about this all you want, but Maybe your spouse is going to come to you at some point and say, you're making me miserable. You're so combative. You make me, I'm, I'm, I don't want to speak my mind because you're, you're a jerk. And so you basically controlled me and, and I'm feeling trapped. This is what's going to happen in your relationships. If you're trying to do anxiety, worry management on your own. So I got two thoughts for you from the second half of our passage in Matthew 28 today, all right? And the first is this, we don't worry because he's sovereignly powerful. I love this passage as it reiterates the kingship of Jesus that we talked about last week and all month. In Matthew 28, beginning with verse 16, it says, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, and this is critical, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus claimed to be the king of the Jews. 
He spoke of his kingdom not being of this world, and John's gospel makes it clear that he existed before the world was created, and through him all things were made. Now Jesus calls himself the sovereign. In other words, in our language, he would say, I'm in charge, I'm in control, I have all authority. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And in spite of what his critics think, Jesus' followers clearly heard him, heard him equate himself with the Father and the Spirit. He does it again in verse 19. If Jesus didn't think he was God, imagine the nerve of saying, and baptize them in the name of the Father and me and the Spirit. I mean, think of the, the nerve it would take to like, place yourself in that kind of company. Me, hanging out with the Father and the Spirit. And he says, we're one. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Jesus formulates the Trinity. Jesus speaks of his own authority and in heaven and on earth. He is the King of kings. As if his resurrection wouldn't approve that. He said in Matthew 26, as he was being arrested, then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? So if you understand really what Jesus is saying, he's saying, if I wanted to alter the circumstance of people coming to arrest me and crucify me, in a heartbeat I could call and I could smite these people. And they're gonzo. I could do it if I wanted to. But my desire is to fulfill the Lord's plan. And Jesus understood as the sovereign, uh, being one with the Father and the Spirit, he understood that part of God's plan often entailed difficulty. For some God-only-knows reason, he has decided to integrate the fallen, broken world that we live in with his purposes and plans. There is such great comfort for us in this. Jesus was willing to see the evil plotting of others who planned to kill him, who unjustly killed him. He was willing to say, I see this as part of God's plan for my life. I'm able to rest and as in Hebrews 12, it says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross and scorned its shame. Jesus was able to see that the Father had a plan, that God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons, one being, the Father, Son, and Spirit, know what's going on. And even if the, the situation and circumstances that we're facing, they seem to be out of our control. You've got powerful people plotting against me. He was able to say, they're just playing into God's hands. I could alter this thing if I wanted to, but why would I do that? This is going to fulfill what Scripture says. God's got a master plan. You and I can rest in this. We don't worry because Jesus is sovereignly powerful. The Scriptures testify to a risen Christ so much so that they describe the conspiracy to discredit the claim. What critics of the resurrection 
never do satisfactorily is answer why Jesus' followers were willing to die for something that wasn't true. There are many apologists who will make this case, and I think it's strong. It's one of the reasons that I believe so strongly in the resurrection of Jesus, which is to say, you and I might be able to manufacture a lie, and then we would you know, forward that lie because it benefited us in some way. But if in the end it ceased to benefit us or our lives were being threatened if we didn't tell the truth, human nature is, I'm going to take care of me, <laughs> and if that means selling out you, I'm going to do it. So you get 11 guys together, and they, according to the Romans, who were being paid by the chief priests and the elders, they took his body in the middle of the night. Let's assume for a second that they did this. That means that all 11 of them were in on the conspiracy to hide the body. And that means that when it came time for them to be killed, now, mind you, the faith that they supposedly created on their own was one of grand self-sacrifice, of rabid giving away of your things. There was nothing that benefited them. They didn't get exalted to these really high states. They were living under the threat of death almost constantly. And in the end, 11 of the original 12 disciples died martyrs' deaths. So at the moment when their life was threatened, you tell the truth about this lie of hiding his body. They all said, nah, even though it's really not perked, made my life that much better in terms of my own physical circumstances and you're going to end my life in the prime of it in its 30s and 40s, you know what? I'll go ahead and die for this lie. There's not a chance in the world that would happen. Chuck Colson, who, is, who passed away recently, was one of the Watergate conspirators and says as much in his book, Loving God. says, the idea that the most highly educated men in America, in the, in the Nixon White House, that they together could not keep a secret, should tell you a little bit about human nature. Then when it was their head on the platter, they sung like canaries, every single one of them. And these are Ivy League educated power brokers. So these 11 fishermen from all these different little villages in Israel, they held up under this same pressure even though they all had the same conspiracy going. I think not. If the disciples knew that Jesus wasn't really alive, I can't believe and don't believe that these same disciples would have been willing to die for a lie they themselves created. Friends, when it comes right down to it, for me, I'm unable to trust God's sovereignty when my idols have begun to give me life. In other words, when I feel threatened, when I think somebody's messing with my program, when I fear that I'm going to lose my job because of a group of people that are after my head, and I lose the capacity to believe that God is sovereign, it's because, generally speaking, in my life, my job has become more important to me than anything else. When I can't believe and trust that people who uh, are in control of a situation are ultimately in control, uh, that God is ultimately in control of them, It's because at some point I've ceased looking at God on his throne above them and focused instead on their position below. Can I believe that uh, less than perfect elders at my church are still being guided by the sovereignty of God? 
When my parents or my boss says no and I think they're wrong, can I trust that God is in control and Jesus is on the throne interceding still? I personally have been unable to do so when I've set my mind and heart on earthly things for my life's joy. And when they are threatened, I will react angrily and with anxiety. In fact, my level of anxiety and anger is usually an indicator of just how important these things have become to me in relation to God. The raw truth of my human broken nature is that I will very easily gravitate toward the things of this earth to provide that which God wants to provide for my soul. And when that happens for me, and then you come along and say, I'm going to take that which is important to you, you'll get the worst part of me. My responsibility is to look and to see that regardless of what the circumstances of my life are laying out in front of me, that Jesus is ultimately the one with the power, the one with the authority. I don't worry because I can focus on and appreciate the fact that he is on the throne. One of the little dives I used to eat at all the time, it's not really a dive, it's a nice little place, uh, when I was like huge and gaining lots of weight, is a Philly's Best. It's a steak and cheese place in Arcadia. And I was chowing down there. <laughs> oh, I can't think about it too long or it'll be really bad for me. Um, I was chowing down at Philly's Best one day and I looked up and I recognized that, that apparently half of the Arcadia Police Department decided to have lunch there too. And, and it was like four people, four civilians and eight cops. And there was like two motorcycle police officers and three cars out front. And it dawned on me that I was having the safest lunch in the history of the world. I mean, I thought, you know, there's no chance anybody's going to rob Philly's best today. I was never so secure at mealtime as I was that one day. The mere presence of such force, the guns, and of course they put the vests on it and it makes them all look big and strong. And, And I thought, this is a great place to be. This is a safe place to be. Because these guys not only have strength, they have the authority to use this weaponry. And and I think about that in relationship to, to our own peace. Do we recognize that this Jesus we say is alive, that we celebrated last week at Easter and went, yay, Jesus is alive. Do we recognize the truth of what he says in what we call the Great Commission? But he says, all authority, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. We don't worry because he's sovereignly powerful. And here's your second point today. Here's your second help. We don't worry because he's spiritually present. I reread the passage again. I'll begin with verse 16. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus' promise is that he's never leaving us. Even as they saw him ascend into heaven, his promise was still true. He was never leaving them, and that's because he equated himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit proceeded from he and the Father and lives in the believer. Real quickly, verse 16, an important thing for you and I to remember. To have the experience that Jesus wants us to have, we have to obey where he tells us to go. 
In other words, you think about where the disciples, they're told, hey, listen, Jesus says, go to Galilee, wait for me there. What if they somewhere along the line say, you know what, I think, I think we should just go to another place. I like Capernaum. And they just kind of decide to go there. Jesus is going to Galilee. They tell him to go to Galilee. They obey him and go to Galilee. And guess what? When they get there, they get to experience Jesus. This is a great metaphor for us. If we want to have the experience with him that he wants us to have, we have to be where he says he's going to be. If he's God, he gets to set the terms of the relationship. He defines what he's like, not us. And we'll cover this next week when we begin our series in Hebrews. One of the first verses in Hebrews is about Jesus being the exact representation of the Father's being. We love to picture Jesus the way we want to picture him. He's given clear directions to us about how and when he guarantees to work in our lives. Fellowship with other believers, time in his word, corporate worship with whichever church family you choose, a regular taking of communion. These are places where the scriptures have told us in advance you'll encounter his presence and his power. And in verse 20 it says, we're to tell others and ourselves to obey everything he's commanded us. We call this passage the Great Commission in Matthew 28, and it's our way of formulating clarity about what Jesus has said to do. And, you know, frankly, as a pastor, I wouldn't be doing my job if I don't teach you to obey everything Jesus has commanded. So here's another command that Jesus issued to his followers. (laughs) Maturity as a believer includes aiming to make disciples of all who will allow you to make disciples of them. In other words, we can't be called Jesus' followers if we don't actually follow him. And he's told his believers, one of the compulsions I want you to have, one of the things you need to obey me in is to make disciples. Make a difference in the lives of other people. Point them to Jesus. Help them become followers. And this isn't just for people in ministry. This is for all of us. Jesus commanded them to go to the mountain in Galilee, which happened to be Jesus' home region. Then he proceeded to give them a command, part of which contained the promise that the Holy Spirit would live in them and that they were never going to be without his presence and therefore they need not fear, they may have peace. One of the beautiful things about this formulation, the Great Commission, is the reassurance that Jesus is going to be with us, not just in the future when we get to go be with him for eternity, but that that eternal life begins now. I will be with you to the very end of the age. That's present tense. This is what King David was talking about in Psalm 23, 4, when he said, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil, for you're with me. This is what the Apostle Paul was talking about in Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, when he said, don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. See, the key to peace in life is to find our real life, our real joy in the presence of the Holy Spirit. His presence in our lives doesn't change with the circumstances. Psalm 23, what David said, Philippians 4, 6 and 7, what the Apostle Paul said, these aren't formulas to follow so that we can get what we want in the moment that we need it. I'm feeling troubled. Let me go get peace. It is a... It is an invitation to a lifestyle of communion with the Holy Spirit's presence in our lives. 
the Holy Spirit's real presence in our physical being because the scriptures are replete with references that if you are a genuine follower of Christ, the Spirit doesn't live out there somewhere. The Spirit now resides in the heart of a believer. You are quite literally a tabernacle, a temple of the Lord. Jesus, in the last week of his life, said this to his disciples in John 14. All this I've spoken while still with you, but the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you to do all things and remind you of everything I've said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. I love this passage because Jesus goes on to tell them again, you heard me say I'm going away and I'm coming back to you. If you love me, you'd be glad that I'm going to the Father for the Father is greater than I. I told you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe. I will not say much more to you for the prince of the world is coming. He has no hold over me, but he comes so the world may learn that I love the Father and do exactly what my Father's commanded me. You and I have been given the battle plan. Before Jesus died, he told his disciples, this is what's going to happen. And then after it happened, he did exactly as he said it was going to happen. And this promise is to you and to me as well. All of what Jesus said to his disciples is for us. And you may, as I do, say it was easier for them to believe because they saw the resurrected Jesus. But Jesus said to his disciples that they were blessed to see and believe, but more blessed are those who haven't physically seen but still believe. And that's us. You see, Jesus is concerned about our peace. And like I've done, I have to ask you, have you set your heart on earthly things instead of on Jesus? Your success, your peace, your comfort, the things that you think controlling your life to get the result you want. And if so, your anxiety level will rise and fall depending on whether the things you set your heart on come or go. Your anger level will skyrocket or dip based not on the unchanging nature of God, but that he's got it all under control. Not the unchanging nature of his presence to remind you of this fact, but instead your feeble attempts to control the circumstances and the people around you through manipulation. Jesus invites you and I to peace, following him, growing to know how kind and gracious he is, He invites us to peace through obedience to his command, the many commands he's given, trusting that he knows more about what's best for us than we do. He invites us to peace through meditation on who he is and continual conscious dependence on his presence in your being. I remember being a little kid and having nightmares and running into my parents' room, climbing up into their bed, having my dad kind of scoop me up. I could feel the gruff beard on his face, but all that reassured me that everything I was fearing was was not real, that my dad was there, he had me. I remember my daughter doing the same thing. She didn't even wake us up, she would just crawl in between us and then wedge her little feet under us and let us know she's there. It was her way of saying, okay, I wanna make sure I know what's real. What's real is that my parents are here and they've got it under control And we forget this. And the key to knowing the peace of God is the reminders that we get of this reality. His Spirit's reminder in our life, whether it be through fellowship with other believers or our own communing with God on a daily basis. Spurgeon says this, and with this I will close today. 
it appears almost impossible that those who have been redeemed by the blood of the dying lamb and loved with an everlasting love by the eternal Son of God should forget that gracious Savior. But if startling to the ear, it is, alas, too apparent to the eye to allow us to deny the crime. Forget him who has never forgot us. Forget him who has poured his blood forth for our sins. Forget him who loved us even to death. Can it be possible? Yes, it is not only possible, but conscience confesses that it is too sadly a fault with all of us that we suffer him to be a wayfaring man tarrying but for a night. He whom we should make an abiding tenant of our memories is but a visitor therein. We don't worry because the Spirit of God is present with you and me. And we don't worry because the Spirit who is present is one with the Father and the Son. The Son, our risen Savior, to whom all authority in heaven and on earth has been given. So let us seek Him today. Lord Jesus, we... uh, come to you and as we prepare for our hearts for communion and it's just one more reminder for us that you have done all that you can to bring us peace not just peace with the father but peace with each other because we're communing